The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, very good. I'm actually an Aussie citizen now as well, so I'm kind of a, I call myself Oswegian, half Aussie, half Norwegian. <laughs> so that's what happens when you with these things. So uh, uh, I'm going to just uh, see what happens with the Dhamma talk tonight. Uh, to, not tonight, this morning. I'm getting really confused now. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I've been talking a lot over the last week. So after a while, you're not really sure what to talk about. But what I want to talk about is more like uh, some uh, some philosophical issues that I've been thinking about a little bit, uh, which I think are interesting, uh, and also how that ties in with the uh, the meaning of life. The meaning of life is always, I found, one of those fundamental things that is so important to consider, because uh, in the end, what is uh, I found so astonishing about Buddhism, you know, when you are young, you think about the meaning of life because you want to find a direction in your life, you want to you know, figure out what you're going to do with yourself. And uh, sometimes if you think about it too much, you end up like this, yeah? the meaning of life. Uh, this is what happens. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so it is a very important thing and it, because it ha gives you that foundation on which everything else really can be based, all your decisions uh, and what you're going to do. Uh, but uh, I thought I would just uh, look at it slightly from a historical perspective. And... Uh, especially look a little bit at uh, kind of the uh, history of maybe science and religion and uh, to kind of come from that because that is interesting. I've always had a little bit of interest in philosophy and, and science because uh, obviously the, the search for truth, the search for it should be really uh, wherever you find truth, uh, yeah, that's why you, you look for truth. So science is part of that and philosophy perhaps also sometimes part of that. And of course Buddhism is, uh, is perhaps the best way of approaching these things, uh, but all of these things should somehow come together uh, and that's when they really work out properly. Uh. And uh, it's interesting, if you look at uh, uh, European history, uh, which I kind of know a little bit more about, not all that much, but a little bit more about than the rest of the world, uh, and if you look back to, you know, especially the Middle Ages uh, in Europe, uh, that's when religion was very powerful in European culture. Uh, at that time, the Catholic Church was pretty much all-powerful, uh, yeah, and uh, because uh, uh, the Catholic Church was so powerful, it actually had very detrimental impact for European society at that time. It was too powerful, uh, and anything gets too powerful, it starts to get corrupted, uh, and it got very, very dogmatic, yeah, and you had all the inquisitions and you had all the, the witch burnings and the kind of books and libraries that were burnt up and all of these kind of things as a consequence of religion becoming too powerful and too dogmatic at that particular time. And uh, I think it, it wasn't all. It was interesting because... Uh, even the Catholic Church at that time was multifaceted. You also had the mystical tradition as well. Uh, and the mystical tradition which happened in the, usually in monasteries, so it was usually very removed from society because Catholic monasteries are very different from Buddhist monasteries. Uh, a Buddhist monastic, in a sense, functions as both someone who withdraws from the world uh, but also as someone who engages with the world. So it's different. Uh, uh, whereas in uh, Catholicism, it was a very strict division between monastics on the one hand uh, and then the priests uh, on the other hand. Uh. So there was a mystical tradition there, but it was kind of hidden behind the cloister walls, yeah, far from the world. Uh. Uh, but I, I, interesting, I just looked up this morning, I, very quickly on the internet, I looked up uh, Christian mysticism. Uh, and there is a web page on Wikipedia, of course, uh, where else? Kind of the world's biggest encyclopedia now on Christian mystics. And it was so long. Yeah, I was just, it must have been hundreds of names on this, this webpage on Christian mystics. I had no idea. I, I, know, I knew very few names, like you know, Teresa of Avila, for example, who is quite famous Christian mystic. Yeah. And, uh, because, and one of the reasons why she's famous in Buddhist circles is because the way she described her mysticism actually fits quite well with how we look at mysticism from a Buddhist point of view. Yeah, she talks about uh, yeah, this idea of... Um, entering different rooms in the house, going deeper and deeper into the, this mansion. And, uh, she, and the way she describes this, it sounds a little bit like uh, the sort of meditation that we do as Buddhist uh, 
Buddhist, whether monastics or lay people, the idea of entering deeper and deeper into something. Yeah, it seems to be a description of samadhi that she's talking about, really. And so very fascinating. They had that tradition there in ancient Europe. But the tradition that became the strongest uh, was the dogmatic tradition, yeah, the idea that you have to believe in a certain way, and if you don't, then you are in serious trouble. If you seek too much knowledge outside or whatever, uh, then of course those uh, that will be burnt and destroyed. Uh. And I think there's a very important uh, point here to be made for us as Buddhists as well, that we, what we should really look for, the thing that really matters for us as Buddhists should be the spiritual tradition, the mystical tradition, the, the search for profound meaning. And the Buddhist teaching is so much about that. Yeah, This is what is the core of the teaching of Buddhism, is precisely the practice and the path of moving forward. And yet somehow, sometimes we also fall into that trap of becoming too dogmatic. Yeah, You have to look at things in a certain way. If you don't, then you are kind of a dodgy Buddhist. Yeah, The Mahayana versus the Theravada. Yeah, those Mahayanas, what do they know? Right? Is that right? <laughs> It's dangerous territory, or you know, not only Mahayana but different kind of areas within Theravada. Yeah, the the uh, I don't know the the ones who ordain bhikkhunis and the ones who don't. Yeah, these are kind of the two, yeah, two big ones. Or the forest tradition versus the city tradition. Yeah, or the uh, the kind of the uh, the Sri Lankan Buddhist versus the you know I don't Thai Buddhist or whatever. And we tend to divide ourselves up into this way. But actually, we have far more in common than what divides us, uh, and it's a spiritual path in especially that is important. There's no need to be so dogmatic about things. Dogmatism divides. uh, Spirituality unifies uh, and creates for harmony. Why? Well, because spirituality really is about all the good qualities. uh. So if you want to unify Buddhism, uh, then practice a spiritual path properly. uh. So this is, uh, I think, a very important point. It leads to very big problems if you get too dogmatic. And in in Europe, it led to, of course, a massive reform. You had the uh, Reformation movement when all the Protestant churches uh, came into existence in Europe. And you had a counter-reformation when the Catholic Church also reformed. Uh, And, of course, it led to the scientific revolution, the uh, Renaissance and then the Age of Enlightenment in Europe, when gradually science started to uh, you know, they started to get the ancient books from ancient Greece, and then they started to uh, establish the scientific uh, way of looking at the world again, starting with Galileo and then kind of moving forward. So, but then, of course, what happened then was that the scientific revolution eventually itself went too far, probably in a certain way. And uh, why was that? Because gradually, as science advanced, uh, God and religion receded into the background more and more. You know, you have this idea of the God of the gaps. Whatever science doesn't explain, that's where God kind of resides. The gap in scientific knowledge, that's where God kind of remains. And as scientific knowledge expanded, the gap for God kind of became smaller and smaller and smaller. And God kind of receded into the background. And the Catholic Church was always on the back foot, yeah, forced to kind of withdraw and change this idea of what God actually is. And eventually, of course, the people started thinking, well, why do we even believe in this God? It doesn't make any sense. So eventually, they chuck out, you know, the majority of people in, in many countries in Europe now have kind of given up the whole idea of Christianity and, and God. And, of course, in Australia, it is very, very largely in a very same kind of situation in Australia as well. And, uh, but uh, the thing is that it, goes, it went to the point, and what is the kind of present uh, scientific outlook on the world is a materialistic outlook or a physical physicalist outlook uh, where everything is just matter uh, yeah and they say the mind doesn't really exist at all there is i don't know if you've heard about this uh, a theory there's a very famous philosopher called Daniel Dennett, is an American philosopher, and him and a few other people, they said the mind is just an illusion, doesn't really exist, all that exists is matter, the mind doesn't exist. And that is where the point where they have gone from the kind of dogmatic religion, gone all the way to science having kind of taken a position where the mind has been completely eliminated and it doesn't exist anymore. But it's kind of a crazy theory, isn't it? The mind doesn't... What do you mean the mind is an illusion? If there's anything we know, it's the mind. If anything is an illusion, it must be the material world, surely, because the mind is... This is it, yeah? This is what you experience right now. 
Uh, to me, it doesn't make any sense. Maybe I just don't understand what they're talking about, but to me, it seems like complete gibberish, uh, the idea that the mind doesn't exist. Uh, and you're taking this kind of all the way across to this very materialistic position. And from a Buddhist point of view, it makes absolutely no sense. Uh, the Buddhist outlook is very much about the mind. This is exactly what uh, the world is about from a Buddhist perspective. Uh, and this other perspective is really a, a, a very problematic from the Buddhist point of view. Uh, and what is uh, interesting about this uh, is that uh, Philosophy, I don't know, I, I've been reading a little bit about this because I find it quite fascinating. Uh, if you look at uh, in the West now, both in philosophy and also in science, uh, there has been a movement in the last few years uh, going away from that very physicalist and materialistic outlook uh, and actually to incorporate the mind into reality. Uh, yeah. And it, it shows us that when it comes to science, I mean, I, I certainly believe in, in science and I believe in the results that science have uh, provided for the world. And we can see that in so many areas where scientific knowledge has kind of advanced. Uh, but uh, uh, sometimes science kind of overreaches uh, and sometimes it becomes scientific opinion or the opinion of scientists uh, rather than really scientific truths. Uh, and this is part of the problem that is happening here. So there's been a backlash in recent years, uh, both in philosophy and science, uh, and then the, the mind has started to come back in from the cold, yeah, uh, which it should have been all the time, uh, and the mind is be now gradually being reintroduced uh, into uh, both science and, uh, and philosophy. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second here. Uh. So this is one problem, yeah? This is one reason why, because they've gone too far, now it is coming back again. Uh, and the other reason is because people feel that, well, if materialism or physicalism is all there is, uh, it is kind of too uh, dark, it is too cold, it is not really, it doesn't give any kind of spiritual uh, satisfaction, it doesn't give any sense of contentment or meaning to life. The entire idea of meaning uh, has been lost when we go to that, uh, go so far in this idea of how the world actually works. Uh, and this is very problematic. If life has no meaning, uh, if we have no sense of purpose, uh, it's very easy to get depressed and sad and feel that, you know, w w what is this all about anyway? Uh, and that can have very detrimental effect for mental health and so many things in this world. Uh. But um, First of all, the idea of science kind of pushing back on the, uh, the kind of materialistic or physicalist outlook. And the scientific idea in the world now, if you ask someone who is kind of, uh, you know, on the kind of a, a typical materialist or physicalist, uh, is that mind is just an, a phenomena that arises out of material things, uh, yeah? So in the phenomena or epiphenomenon, of the material world. It just comes about because material phenomena organize in a certain way and then big mind comes out. Bing, now you're conscious, yeah? If the material phenomena disintegrate, then consciousness is kind of uh, eliminated. Uh. So the idea is that when mat material phenomena reach a certain complexity, like a brain, a brain is a very complex organ, yeah? Organized in a certain way. Yeah? And then when that organ get com com gets complex enough, then consciousness, bing, arises out of that, uh, yeah, like a miracle. Uh, ding, conscious, big light goes on. Now you know what's going on, yeah, because the, the, the brain is there in a complex way. Uh, and if you think about it, uh, it sounds like a miracle, yeah? Why does consciousness suddenly arise? Because you, you know, you put together material phenomena in a certain way, and then bang, suddenly the light goes on inside her. Uh, but this has been the idea, it's called uh, the idea of emergence, the emergence of consciousness uh, from material phenomena. But if you ask a philosopher or a scientist how that emerges, there is no answer. Yeah? It's just, it, it really is just like a miracle. Yeah? It's like the, there is no reply to this particular question. Uh, and uh, because of that, uh, uh, they have started to rethink. There is a, what they call an explanatory gap between material phenomena on the one hand uh, and then the mind on the other one. And there's no way they can bridge that gap. There's not even in principle any idea of how that gap can be bridged. Uh, and because of that, what has happened in recent years, some of the very 
most famous philosophers in the, in the world, some of the most famous scientists. It also started with physics and it started with neuroscience. They've started to rethink the very foundations of how we think about this, to reintroduce the mind into the world, because it just doesn't work the way it is now. I don't know, you, sometimes you may have heard about, uh, you know, in, uh, in Silicon Valley where they have artificial intelligence, yeah? And this idea of artificial intelligence, they also say that, well, if you make this artificial intelligence complex enough, if you kind of get these, uh, you know, these electric circuits in a certain pattern, maybe looking a bit like the brain, then maybe these machines will become conscious, yeah? Suddenly you get the complexity, bang, consciousness, yeah, the light goes on in the machine, and suddenly the machine starts to feel the world, and the machine thinks, yeah, I'm going to get rid of humanity, yeah, humanity is bad, and I would just have machines everywhere. That's kind of the nightmare kind of science fiction scenarios that you sometimes read about, yeah? the evil machine. Is that possible from a Buddhist perspective? Not really. Yeah, from Buddhism, consciousness cannot arise just like that out of nothing. Suddenly, bang, it goes on. Consciousness in Buddhism arises in accordance with the laws of dependent origination. Paticca Samuppada. That's how it arises. And what are those laws? Well, those laws are essentially that the consciousness arises out of a previous instance of consci- consciousness. So if you know dependent origination, you have sankara, pachaya, vinyana, from the condition of activities, or the will, if you like, yeah, the intentions of the mind, come consciousness. Those intentions of the mind are really just another instance of consciousness. Yeah, To have an intention, you have to be conscious. So you have to have consciousness there, to, for consciousness to re-arise in the future. And consciousness cannot arise out of a vacuum, merely out of material phenomena coming together in a certain pattern. It just doesn't work like that. Experience cannot actually arise from, uh, from material phenomena in this way, according to uh, Buddhist basic Buddhist ideas and principles of how the world works. So Buddhism, we reject that idea. Well, I, I at least, that's the way I understand Buddhism. I, I, I reject that idea. There's no way you're going to have consciousness arising in machines, yeah, in artificial intelligence, regardless of how complex they are. Actually, maybe there is a, maybe there is a way. Because what, what, if, now what if one of you here really wants to get reborn as a machine? <laughs> Yeah, what if you think it would be really cool to be some kind of artificial intelligence robot? Yeah, then maybe that's the way it will happen. Yeah, so you, you and die. You think, yeah, you get this powerful craving to be reborn as a robot, and bang, there you are. Oh, I'm a robot. Oh no, I wrong kind of craving. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't know what it is like to be a robot. Maybe not so nice. So you have to kind of walk like this, and, and you have to, you know, you have to do what other people tell you to do, and that kind of things. I, I, so uh, please don't crave to be a robot. Yeah? I think that's very, very unwise. But, may, but that might be the only way I can imagine that you might have a conscious robot. Yeah? If someone, and there's always people who are crazy enough to have these kind of desires. Uh, yeah? you know, the world is so diverse. Uh, so what do you think, would it, uh, would you like to be a robot? Uh? No. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's too, it's too wise to be a robot. So. <clears throat> So then that might be the only way. But the idea that consciousness can be created from nothing, yeah, yeah, that is not a Buddhist idea. And it's not going to happen as far as Buddhism. And I, I have plenty enough confidence in Buddhism to kind of dismiss those kind of wild fantasies of Silicon Valley as just wild fantasies and not based in any kind of reality here. And uh, so that is that side of things. So as Buddhists, we can sort of, I think we can see past that and see beyond those kind of ideas. And of course, another aspect, so that is kind of the, from the philosophical point of view, it doesn't really work. From the scientific point of view, yeah, I, I you know, I, I, I hate to kind of involve, get too much into physics because physics is all very complex and very often you hear that in religious circles they kind of invoke quantum mechanics but nobody really understands it so how can you invoke these things but still there are a few things we do know about quantum mechanics that are fairly well established and that is that one of the main interpretations of quantum mechanics is the idea that the world can only exist if there is consciousness yeah 
In other words, these quantum mechanical things, they only solidify and become the world once consciousness there is there to observe these things. And this is kind of one of the most well-known results of quantum mechanics. And uh, very interesting, there was a very famous uh, physicist, a fellow called Richard Con Henry, who wrote an article in the Nature, you know, Nature magazine, yeah, the preeminent scientific magazine in the world, published in the UK. Uh, and he had a lead article in Nature, this was back in 2003 or something, uh, where he said, basically said, and this is revolutionary in science, uh, he said that the world is mental. Yeah, the world is mental. It's almost turning everything upside down. And of course, this is now, they have done many more experiments in, in physics since then. And this idea that the world actually is mental has, if anything, becomes even more solidified since that time. But this is in Nature magazine. If these kind of articles occur in Nature magazine, what we are seeing, we're seeing a shift in the thinking in the world of science as well. Or I think people are starting to realize that mind is one of the fundamental realities of existence. And without mind, basically, there is no existence at all. That's what he was saying, yeah? This particular physicist, without the mind, there is no existence at all. Everything just uh, uh, disappears and there's nothing there, yeah? So this is uh, how things have been changing in the Western world recently. And I find this very fascinating. Yeah, it's been changing in philosophy. Some of the great philosophers, some of the greatest, most scientists, there's a fellow called Richard, no, not Richard, what's his name again? Uh, Christoph Koch, a very famous neuroscientist in the US. He has started to embrace some of these ideas. There's a shift, this thing they call a paradigm shift, when the entire outlook, the way we look at the world is changing and it's starting to put together in a new way. And this seems to be what's happening in the last few years within Western philosophy and science. In Asia, it's a bit different because Asia have, you know, uh, have their own traditions. I'm talking mostly from a Western point of view because that's what I know. Uh, I don't really have that same kind of understanding about uh, Asian societies. So I don't really want to talk too much about, about that. Uh, very interesting because what this means is that uh, if this gets generally accepted, it's still a bit on the side. Yeah, It's still not generally accepted in science. Uh, but if this gets generally accepted uh, and it looks to me like it's heading in that way, uh, yeah, then, of course, it will change our outlook, it will change our values, uh, and our society will be heading in a different direction. Uh. But before I talk a little bit more about that, I just want to say a little bit about the, the ideas that are kind of coming up in, uh, in philosophy and in science and how it matches with Buddhist ideas. Uh. So one of the ideas, for example, is uh, what they call the dualistic idea. Du uh, dualism is a kind of philosophy whereby you have material phenomena on the one hand, uh, and then you have the mental phenomena on the other. Uh, yeah, This is one of these theories that have, has come up. Uh, actually, it's an ancient theory. Uh, and... Uh, and the idea, the problem with that theory is that it's very hard to understand how those material phenomena and the mental phenomena can work together if they are completely separate entities. Yeah? But we sort of experience the world as both material and mental, so somehow it has to work together. So how does that fit with Buddhism? Buddhism is not really... Buddhism is kind of a... It doesn't really fit all that well with Buddhism. Buddhism doesn't have this kind of dualistic nature. Buddhism has ideas of fine materiality. For example, if you have an out-of-body experience, what is, what is that like? Has anyone here had an out-of-body experience? Maybe, I don't know. I, I don't have to say. But uh, generally speaking, this out-of-body experience are very are fascinating to read about because uh, when you come out of your body, you have another body, Yeah. You say, oh, I have another body now, that coarse physical body left behind. But you come out, it's like, it says in the suttas, it's like drawing a, you have a, a straw, you draw one straw out of its sheath, yeah, they kind of, and then the other, the, the, the uh, sheath kind of falls away and the inner straw comes out. And it looks pretty much like the previous straw. Uh, in the same way, when you withdraw from your body, you have, have an outer body experience, uh, it's like you come out of your body, but you have another body. It's called a fine material body. So, Mater physicalism or materialism in Buddhism is very more refined. It has many stages to it. Uh, so it doesn't fit with the Buddhist outlook. Yeah. Then you have uh, an, an idea in uh, philosophy called panpsychism, uh, is the idea that there is consciousness everywhere. Yeah, everything is conscious. Uh, so an electron is conscious. Uh, yeah, 
So maybe I don't know what that means, whether they can speak or whatever, the electrons are probably not. But this is the idea, another idea, which does not really, it's kind of also a bit strange. It doesn't really fit so much with the Buddhist outlook. But there is another philosophical, ancient philosophical idea, which also exists in ancient Buddhism. That is the idea called idealism, where everything exists in the mind. Yeah, the mind is the basic idea of reality, yeah, and the world exists in the mind. Yeah, and this is one of the also another kind of leading philosophy that is coming back. And this fits much better with Buddhist ideas. Yeah. You know, the Buddhist ideas in Mahayana Buddhism or in uh, evolved Buddhist philosophy, they have the mind-only school. And this is very much similar to that, that everything really exists as part of the mind. But also in the early suttas, one of the suttas, the discourses I often like to to, uh, reference is a sutta called the Rohitasa Sutta. And Ajahn Brahm always says Rohitasa was the first astronaut yeah, why? Because he was supposed to have gone to the end of the universe. He was looking for the end of the world. So he had this, he could have steps. So he kind of tried to walk to the end of the universe. And then he goes to the Buddha. He says, oh, I tried to walk to the end of the universe. I couldn't find the end of, end of the universe. And, uh, or the end of Dukkha, yeah, which is the same as the end of the universe. So he goes to the Buddha. And the Buddha says, you're looking in the wrong place. You cannot find the end of Dukkha or the end of the universe by walking the end of the universe, the end of dukkha, is found within this fathom-long body. And the Buddha says the world, yeah, the world which is equivalent to dukkha really, is found in this fathom-long body with its mind, with its consciousness and its perception. The, the, the cause of the world is found within this body, this fathom-long body with its consciousness and perception. The end of the world is found within this body, yeah, with its uh, perception and consciousness uh, and the path leading to the end of the world or to the end of dukkha is also found within this thing here yeah this person basically here so buddhism is if anything is hard to pin it down exactly but even early buddhism is similar to this idea of idealism it is our world yeah that really counts if there is anything outside, it is kind of irrelevant from a Buddhist point of view. It is our world because this is where dukkha is found. This is where the problem arises. If there is meaning, it is found within these five khandhas. This is what the world really is about. So it is possible that Buddhism comes fairly close to this idea of idealism in, in modern philosophy. I don't know. But this is just kind of trying to align an ancient teaching like Buddhism with modern ideas. It's always very risky, so I, I don't really know. But it, it looks like there is some kind of similarity there. So there are all of these things happening, and some of them seem to fit reasonably well with what we're doing. And this is kind of interesting. Yeah. And the reason why I find it interesting, because if this really happens in our society, we will change dramatically the way we look at things will be completely different from the way we used to be. Once the mind becomes one of the uh, central aspects of our existence, uh, suddenly it opens up all kinds of possibilities. Uh, yeah, possibilities like rebirth, uh, possibilities like kamma, the importance of the spiritual path. All of these things come rushing back into our society in a brand new, in a new way that they never really have done before. Uh, why? Well, because precisely because mind gains a new centrality, not just in spiritual circles, but actually in the entire outlook, how we think about the world uh, at the very core of, of society. And that's why it is exciting. Uh, and it will have very many powerful impacts. Uh, imagine psychology. In psychology these days, all they do is look at your past yeah, in this life uh, but if you believe, if you have an idea of rebirth, uh, then of course that will have a big impact on psychology because suddenly your past lives will matter. Yeah, then you, you know, you so that would have a, be, be a very different way of thinking about things uh, once you take these things into account. Uh, maybe it will affect evolution, evolutionary theory, even though evolution may be right as far as it goes. If you bring the mind into it, it may again change some of the basic assumptions perhaps in that theory as well. Physics, we have already seen a changing physics, but the most important thing, I think, it will change society to make society more focused on mental development instead of just being focused on the external world. That is the most interesting thing here. And it will be more likely to 
uh, open society up for spiritual practice, for mental development, yeah, uh, part of the, taking the mindfulness movement way beyond what the mindfulness movement is now. It is still, from a Buddhist perspective, quite a narrow way of looking at spiritual path, yeah, mindfulness movement. It might open that up in a far wider thing here. So this is interesting for the future of our society. It's interesting from Buddhist perspective, yeah, we have a big opportunity to have an impact on society if society be ritual uh, and society takes the mind into account much more. Uh, so it's very cool from a Buddhist perspective yeah, because we, it opens up new avenues. Uh, and uh, not only that, but I think that in a society such as ours where there are so many problems, yeah, coronavirus seems to be only right now, we are, everyone is obsessed with coronavirus, uh, but it's only a small thing. Yeah. You know, in the big picture of things, it may seem big now, but it's only a small thing in the big picture of things. Uh, far worse is things like climate change. Uh, that is really worrying, uh, yeah, in the big thing. Or sometimes some of the political things happening in the world, uh, yeah. You, you, some, we don't really know what's going on. There's just all this weird stuff happening. Things are changing very fast, and whenever there's change, uh, people, of course, are concerned. Uh, but so there's a lot of concern in society here. Uh, but uh, so sometimes it is nice to look at maybe there are things that are going in the opposite direction, huh? things where, where we can look with, optimis with optimism towards the future. Huh? And I think one of those optimistic outlooks is actually the changes that we have seen within uh, uh, the kind of uh, so, you know, social big kind of uh, a picture of how we look at the world, especially in the West, uh, and bringing the mind back in from the cold again and uh, uh, making uh, the mental aspect of the world and ourselves far more important. I think that's a really a positive outlook uh, that maybe will have very positive ramifications down the track. Uh, and it is very uh, good, I think. It's a very positive thing for society that this actually is happening. Uh, and it's a great opportunity also for Buddhism to kind of uh, become more perhaps mainstream. We're still a tiny minority in Australia or in, indeed in most places in the Western world. Uh, but I think this may may change, and you may uh, there's a big potential there. Yeah. So this is uh, all I think very uh, interesting and very uh, very important. Uh, so uh, this is uh, uh, this is how I kind of see maybe the world kind of changing gradually, yeah, moving towards finding more meaning in the mental realm. Uh, because this, ultimately, I'm coming back now roughly to where I started out with the idea of meaning. What actually is meaningful? What does it mean to have a meaningful life? Yeah? And from a Buddhist point of view, what it really means to the search finding meaning is precisely in the mental realm. What is the individual meaning for the individual person? And the answer, of course, if you look, in, if you look into your own psychology, that's where we have to look to look for meaning. And you know that the meaning for each one of us individually is always this movement towards something better. We want to improve. We want to have better lives. We want to feel more fulfilled. We want to feel more complete. You want to feel more satisfied with things. You like to reduce the suffering and the problems a little bit. yeah. And as you do that, that is where you find fulfillment. And if you do that enough, if you keep on fulfilling and living the spiritual life in the right way, there comes a point, says the Buddha. And some of you may have already experienced that in your meditation practice to some extent, where you actually do find that fulfillment. You do find that kind of thing inside of you, whereby you actually find yourself feeling fully satisfied, fully content in a very profound sense. And that is what the spiritual path, the Buddhist path, actually promises you. And this is why it is so extraordinarily interesting. Yeah, it gives really, it gives you that feeling that you are moving towards the very purpose of life itself, found in the spiritual realm, in the mental realm, in the development of the mind. And that is where I think Buddhism has something very powerful society, especially if society becomes more open to the idea of the mental universe really mattering here. Yeah, and to me, I don't know about you, but to me it's like, if we have the answer to the meaning of life, well, if, if that is true and we can present that in a way that is meaningful to the world, yeah, they can actually accept this to some extent, uh, then isn't this a teaching that is extraordinarily important? 
that is really significant, that really has the potential to kind of make people, wow, you have the answer to the meaning of life. Jeepers, you know, why, why am I not a Buddhist? I must be a Buddhist. How can you not be a Buddhist if Buddhism has the answer to the meaning of? You must be a Buddhist. Yeah, that's the only rational thing here. Otherwise, it kind of, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's crazy. If you found the meaning of life and you say, yeah, meaning of life, who cares? I'm going to go here instead. That's, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's kind of, it's really, uh, really silly. So this is where there is this vast opportunity, the development of the mind, uh, becoming more and more uh, moving towards that sense of meaning, towards that sense of fulfillment. Uh, and many of you will have felt some of that already uh, when you feel peaceful, uh, when you feel that you are living well, and you start to feel the satisfaction arising from that mental development, from the movement towards these kind of things. Uh, so how do we do this? I just want to recap very briefly on how we actually do this kind of practice, uh, how we can find this fulfillment in our life, uh, Yeah, gradually, eventually going all the way to the very meaning of life itself. Uh, how do we do that? And one of the most important things is to move away from this idea of being result-oriented. Yeah, we are always so result-oriented. We always want the bottom line is what matters if you work for a company. What matters is that we're able to deal with the external world and sort out all the external problems in the world and kind of get everything sorted out. Yeah, And so everything is very result-oriented. But the problem is that that external world is inherently out of control. This is what you see when you see coronavirus. That's exactly what you see. You see inherently out of control. When you see climate change, you see again out of control. When you see it changing in politics or whatever it is that changes, then it is inherently out of control. If you have a materialistic or physicalist outlook, which is kind of the, uh, the, the outlook that is most common, uh, in, certainly in the philosophical circles these days, uh, well, then it means that your mental world, uh, your happiness, uh, your sense of fulfillment, your contentment or whatever it is, uh, depends on the external phenomena because the mind is just a reflection of those external things. Uh, and that's a terribly depressing viewpoint. Yeah, It means that you are trapped in that world. And if that world goes in the wrong way, and how much can each one of us do for that world? Not that much. We can do a little bit, but we are only one person among how many people now on this planet? Seven billion? Eight billion? Who knows? It's going so quickly. Before you know it, it's nine or ten. Yeah, that's boof, going up. And so... It's kind of depressing, yeah? If that is the whole world and our inner life depends on that material world, uh, then there's nothing really you can do. And no wonder we become so interested in fancy cars and fancy houses. It is really, it, it, it creates a kind of materialistic outlook whereby what really matters is how much stuff you have, you know, how nice your car is and all of these kind of things. That is the outcome of this kind of view of the world because the external world is what matters, but that is, from a Buddhist point of view, very, very problematic. And down the track, it leads to depression, it leads to sadness and sorrow and all kinds of things. Because you rely on something that is inherently problematic, inherently out of control for your happiness. So this is why it is so important to get away from that physicalist way of thinking about the world and reincorporating the mind again. Yeah? And this is why these things really are so important so you remember, those results in the world, uh, they are not the main thing here. Those results are always going to be problematic. Uh, and so we, the idea, Buddhist idea, is to move away from the result, uh, change our outlook, uh, look in a different direction. And as I like to say, focus on the process, uh, how you get there, how you move towards something. That is far more important than the actual result. Uh, so if you... If the world doesn't become right, and there's no guarantee it will, if you don't reach that bottom line in a company that you're supposed to reach, yeah, at the very least, as you have moved towards those things, we have lived with integrity. We have lived with compassion, with kindness, with caring for the environment, caring for our things and even the animals and whoever it is. And when you live with care, when you live with kindness, actually, whether the result happens or not is not so important anymore because you carry something with you that is far, far more important. Yeah? The inner happiness, the inner uh, good karma that you live with and that when eventually you die, that is what you take with you anyway. That is what really matters. So the idea 
in Buddhism is to focus on the process. Yeah, Move away from always looking at goals. And it's kind of miraculous. If you do focus on the process and you do that in the right way, in my experience, you're more likely even to reach good outcomes and good goals anyway. Yeah, All this fighting, all the antagonism, all the rivalry that we have all the time, we can't really cooperate properly. But if everyone focuses on the process, it means that we can start to cooperate also. And when you cooperate, then outcomes really start to happen as a consequence. So actually, it is a win-win situation. In fact, not just win-win, win-win-win-win. Yeah, it's just winning on all levels. This is kind of the beauty of this, this sort of approach, I, as far as I can see. So that is what we need to do. Focus on the process. What does it mean to focus on the process? It means to focus on how you do these things with kindness, care, compassion, all of these wonderful qualities that we're trying to develop on the Buddhist path anyway. And I want to give you an example of how this actually works in practice. Uh, yeah, I'll give you one. This is one of my stories I've been telling recently because uh, it, is, uh, uh, it happened many, many years ago, about 30 years ago. And this is a story with Ajahn Brahma. Yeah? And uh, this is, uh, you may have heard that back in 1991, this was in January, towards the end of January, at Bodhinyana Monastery in Perth. Uh, and there was a big fire at the monastery here. Uh, you may have heard about that. And I, if you've seen the pictures of Bodhinyana Monastery at that time, they, it looked like a moon landscape. It was just completely gray, and there was not a single kind of green thing left yeah, in the, almost in the entire monastery. Everything was completely burnt. Uh, and... Uh, uh, at that time, this was towards the end of January, towards the end of summer, yeah. And in in Perth, uh, towards the end of summer, there's no there's no kind of summer rain like you have here in Melbourne. Perth is just dry, yeah, really, really dry during the summer. Yeah. So towards the end of January, you had two months of pretty much no rain whatsoever, and temperatures often in the high 30s, yeah. And uh, on this particular day, I think it was the 30th of January. It was the hottest day in Perth on record, 46 point something degrees, uh, some kind of ridiculous temperature. Uh, not just that, the winds were also very high. Uh, so summer had been going on for two months, uh, very high temperature, very high winds, uh, the worst possible, actually perfect, the worst possible conditions uh, for bushfires. Yeah, absolutely the worst possible conditions. Uh, and of course, what happens? Uh, you get a bushfire. Yeah. So there was a bushfire coming from the south, uh, moving towards Bodhinana Monastery, yeah. And then uh, uh, all the monks, they sort of, you know, after a while they, they, they found out about this through, I don't know, bushfire, the, the fire brigade or whatever. And they all uh, got together in the main hall at Bodhinana Monastery, yeah. And after a while the fire brigade said, you've got to evacuate, yeah. There is no choice. It is so bad. This fire is like one of these really very powerful fires with the eucalyptus trees, yeah, which are full of oil, they kind of explode. And the fire, because of the strong winds, moves from one tree to the next one. It jumps from one tree, even if there's a big gap between the trees. Yeah, the wind pushes the fire forward, and the next tree kind of bang goes up like a bomb, like a bomb, because of the oil just kind of igniting spontaneously and then the whole tree all the leaves burning up and then the ground burning up and eventually the whole place looks like you're on mars or something it looks completely different uh, from what it was before well you probably have some experience recently here in uh, victoria as well uh, and uh, so it was really 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 scary yeah really very very powerful fire uh, so uh, they say we've got to evacuate uh, we've got to leave uh, and remember, at this particular point, this was in January 1991, yeah? at this particular point, Ajahn Brahm, he was the main builder of Bodhinyana Monastery. Some of the building licenses we had were signed by Ajahn Brahm. He actually was the builder yeah, of the monastery, quite literally, in, in, in some cases. And so he had spent up to 10 hours a day Seven hours, seven days a week. There's no, there's no weekend for working monks. Yeah, it's like every day is exactly the same. Seven days a week, and maybe you had a kind of a, you had a few weeks off during the rains retreat, perhaps. But he had worked like that continuously for seven years, building up Bodhinyana Monastery. This was his life's work. This is what he had been doing with his life. There is that um, 
uh, amazing story. I don't know if you heard that story. You know, we, if you know the, we have a main hall at Bodhinyana Monastery. Uh, and the main hall, it has a peaked roof. Yeah, the roof goes up like that. Uh, and at the very apex, at the very highest point, uh, yeah, before the roof was on, uh, just brickworks, uh, the very top bricks in that apex had not been laid. Yeah, the bricks still needed to be, to be put up at that very apex. Uh, and this apex is maybe nine, eight or nine meters above ground. It's really, really high. Maybe it's even 10 meters, I'm not sure. It's really, really high up, that apex. It's quite a tall hall. It's quite a large meditation hall. And so uh, at that time, because there was no roof, there was just a wall going straight up, a double brick wall, yeah, with no support on either side. So if there was a bit strong wind, it would kind of swing a bit in the wind, yeah, back and forth. And then Ajahn Brahm says, okay, I'm going to lay those bricks at the very apex. No scaffolding, no ropes, no safety, nothing. Just straight down on both sides, yeah? And, it, and because it is bricks, it has kind of a jagged edge like this going up to the apex. So he takes bricks in one hand, mortar and things in the other hand, and he walks up to the top of that apex, yeah? is a bit thinner then than he is now, so it was a bit easier to, to do this. He gets to the peak lays the bricks, yeah, and then comes down again. Uh, and uh, the, it was almost a miracle that he survived. It was an absolute nuts, crazy thing to do, to do that sort of thing. But that is how invested he was in the monastery, yeah. He basically, he risked his life for the purpose of building up Bodhinyana Monastery, yeah. It's kind of really over the top, the kind of things that he did. And that shows you the kind of mindfulness he had, yeah, the samadhi. He just walks up, dick, 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 lays the bricks, comes back down again. I would never have done that, absolutely no way. Yeah. Would you Would you have done that, Venerable? You are kind of a, a builder. Yeah. You would? Whoa, okay. <laughs> okay. Just so you can tell the story afterwards, okay. Uh, that's good. Yeah, so he is, he is far, he's pretty tough, this one in Murita. So you, you're very lucky to have a monk like him, uh, him around. <laughs> so this was Ajahn Brahm, basically had spent, this was his life's work, yeah? S- seven years, all he had been doing pretty much was building Bodhinyana Monastery. And now the fire is coming in. The fire brigade is telling him we have to evacuate. Yeah, we have to leave the monastery. And at that point... When the fire brigade says that, Ajahn Brahm knows this is the end of the monastery. It's a really big fire. It's terrible. Everything is going to burn down. At that point, that is his knowledge. Yeah, there's no reason to think that Vodinana Monastery will survive this fire. And he says, told me later on that at that point, when he knew that, uh, he was able to let go straight away. Uh, completely let go of every work. Let it all go. Uh, and actually be ready on the following day, he told me this, and this was kind of what was so astonishing for me. I was ready at that point. Come back on the next day and start from scratch. Yeah, imagine doing that. Your life's work, everything that you have done, burnt down, everything gone. Let go completely. Come back on the following day and start from scratch. Yeah, Get the bulldozer in, bulldoze down all the buildings, uh, foundations, and build everything up again here. And so I was so astonished when I heard that because the most people in the world, we are so um, to the results of things. Yeah, If we have a good result and good outcome of something, we attach to that. And if everything that we have done is destroyed like that, we, yeah, it feels really bad because it's almost as if our life's work has gone up into flames and there's nothing behind it. So I asked him, how do you do that? How is it possible to let go of everything so quickly like that and actually say you're going to start from scratch again? And his answer is a powerful thing. This was kind of the whole point of this when I asked him this question. And he said the reason was because I never did this job to build up the monastery. The result wasn't the important thing. I did it because it was a good thing to do. I did it because of the process, because of the kindness that goes into it, because of the generosity of building up something beautiful. And that kindness and generosity would be exactly the same the next day if I start from scratch again. So because I wasn't invested in the result, the result was irrelevant. It was actually the process that matters. That's why I could let go just like that. And this is kind of the lesson, yeah? This is the lesson of the Buddhist path. You do things not because of the results, because you understand that the results are always so uncertain. You never know whether they're going to come about or not. You do things because of the process, 
how, what you put into it, the heart that you put into things, the kindness, the compassion, the care that you have for other people and other beings, that is how you actually make this whole thing work. And if you live like that, then you are gradually fulfilling the very meaning of life itself. If you can live like that, then eventually all these factors on the Buddhist path will come together. You were able to meditate, you were able to kind of go to the new retreat center at Newbury Monastery, we were just talking about that yesterday, and sit down and close your eyes, and because you've done everything right, your meditation is going to come together. And then you really will experience, you too, every one of us, everyone who takes this thing seriously, will be able to experience that result and actually discover the very meaning of life itself as a consequence. Okay, so that is a, uh, a little talk for you uh, this morning. Uh, I'm going to stop there uh, and uh, uh, take some questions if you like. Uh. Life is silence. <laughs> Okay. Any questions, anyone? Huh? Sorry? Online questions. Just okay. Two online questions. Okay, good. Huh? Yeah. That's the ones. So they're both from the US. So the first question Is there a connection between spiritual life and poverty or frugality? In some Christian traditions, there can be vows of poverty as a basis for renunciation. What might a Buddhist say? Yeah, I, well, the thing, the, the Buddhist idea is very much the same. Yeah, if you look at the uh, monasticism, Buddhist monasticism, it is very much about giving up the, uh, the world and giving up kind of interest in that realm. So Buddhist attitude is very similar. And if you look at the Buddhist path, uh, the, what is called the gradual training in the suttas, it always starts off with a, a monastic or someone ordaining, giving up everything in the all the worldly attachments, all the worldly belongings. Uh, you give up a large or small sum of uh, possessions. Uh, it also says you give up kind of your fan of the idea. It's nothing wrong with being wealthy or, or average or even there's nothing wrong with being poor either for that matter. They're all okay. But uh, it's the idea of contentment, because if you are content with what you have, uh, then you will uh, also experience less suffering in life, and you will be on the path towards meditation and all of these things. Uh, so there is a lot of similarity there between the uh, Christian idea of, of poverty and also the, the Buddhist idea. Yeah. Okay, the second question is actually from, from Canada, not from the US. They okay, get a bit close enough. About, yeah. Um, thing uh, what is your perspective on secular Buddhism? Secular Buddhism? Uh, I, it's interesting, the idea of secular, because uh, what secular Buddhism very often means, yeah, well, how they define that is not to believe in, I guess, what they consider religious superstitions yeah, or religious dogmas or whatever. That's kind of the idea. So they kind of include things like rebirth, uh, into the idea of religious dogma, yeah. And to me, rebirth is not a religious dogma. To me, it is some. It's actually an aspect of how the world works. So it's not really dogma at all. And so this is where you have to be careful. What do we mean by secularism in the first place? Is secularism needs to? To me, Buddhism is secular because Buddhism is really just a particular outlook. This is the way the world works and this is the consequence of how the world works. If there is rebirth, if there is dukkha, if there are problems and you need a certain practice to get out of those problems and that is what the Buddhist path is. So the idea of rebirth is neither religious it's not really religious as far as I'm concerned. It's just an outlook. It's a way of thinking about the world, which happens also to be true according to the Buddha. So sometimes, you know, what we call secularism now, uh, in, in, in 20 years or 50 years, maybe rebirth gets reaccepted by society. Maybe uh, you have shown by some kind of scientific or psychological method that rebirth is even true yeah, on a more objective basis. Uh, then, of course, then it, that becomes part of the secular culture. Yeah, it is no longer a superstition. So sometimes what people take to be superstition is just the uh, kind of um, 
the, uh, um, the mainstream society thinks at that particular time is, is, uh, is problematic, and for that reason they give it up. So secular Buddhism is, uh, I think, is often a misnomer. It is, that is also just a, often just a belief and a way of looking at the world, which is ne- not necessarily any more right or any more wrong than any other way of thinking about the world. Uh, so we have to be very careful. From my point of view, Buddhism is actually secular. There shouldn't be any distinction between secularism and Buddhism. We need to unify spirituality and secularism because spirituality is about insight into reality. It is not about kind of pretending that things are one way when actually they are another way. We are trying to look for truth. That is what Buddhism, Buddhist path is all about. So I think that what we call secular Buddhism, I think they often go wrong. I don't know if they really are secular, to be honest. I think they too are um, often uh, given to beliefs and outlooks that are not actually based on reality. So in one way, I would argue that secular Buddhists are just as dogmatic and can be just as problematic their outlook than any other, than many religious outlooks can be. This is, they fall into the same problem, the same category of uh, overestimating their insight into this. And for that reason, it becomes a dogma, just like many other religious dogmas. So uh, the world is often more mysterious than we kind of think it is. Yeah, There are things going on in the world which are uh, profound and interesting. And so for that reason, I, I think secular Buddhism is, uh, is uh, in some ways deeply problematic, certainly the way it is presented now. Is there any questions from the floor? Yeah. Just a quick question, but thank you for your talk this morning. Um, Could you just give the um, reference details to the astronaut Sutta, please? Yeah, of course. It it is in the Anguttara 4s, numerical discourse 4s, number 45, roughly, in the 40s, something. A and 4, I'll be able to find it. Yeah, I think it's around 45, number number 45. Thank you. Rohitasa, Rohitasa Sutta, Let's look up Rohitasa. There's only one, a couple of Rohitasa mentions in all the four Nikayas. Uh, yeah. Hi. Uh, you mentioned um, a conscious electron. Yeah. It made me wonder about um, something I read about the jhanas and mm. infinite spaciousness mm-hmm. and therefore infinite consciousness. Mm. Could that apply to that electron? Um. Uh, maybe I think the, I think the idea with the conscious electron is that each particle is conscious in its own right. Uh, yeah, so every electron has its own kind of consciousness. Uh, I think that's the idea. So uh, I and and I think the problem with that this is called panpsychism because there is a psychological dimension to every little bit of matter, no matter how small it is. Uh, and I, and the problem with that outlook is well, how do you then, uh, for example, a human being, you are. We only know that we are conscious. We know that much. Or I don't even know that you're conscious, but I'm assuming you're conscious, yeah? So because, just simply because it kind of, you know, by inference, inferential knowledge. Yeah. So the problem is what they call a combination problem. How do you put all of those electrons, put them together, yeah, and then kind of all this matter together, and then creates one unified consciousness out of those, all those tiny little consciousnesses? Yeah. This is the problem with what they call panpsychism, yeah. So uh, I, I think the uni- idea of universal consciousness is, 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 uh, is just an aspect of individual human beings. Yeah? It is actually you. We are the experience of universal consciousness uh, or infinite space. Uh, so that is just an aspect of what is this or in consciousness in human form. Uh, it is not something I think that actually relates to the, uh, necessarily to the, unless I misunderstand your, your, your question. Uh, but to me, it seems like it is more. This is more a personal kind of thing that you, you know, the, uh, exp- part of the personal experience rather than a, and some kind of uh, electron, electron thing here. Yeah. Oh, John, you mentioned about uh, dependent origination. Uh, can you explain dependent origination, where the personality fits in, and the process of rebirth of personality, in the context of. Uh, Dependent origination. Rebirth. Okay, so the, the, uh, how the rebirth happens in dependent origination, is that what you're asking about? Uh, yeah. Okay, so it's, well, the, 
the idea of uh, dependent origination is very uh, similar to the idea of what happens right now in this life right now yeah so how how is the continuity in this life how you know who are you now compared to what you were 10 years ago or 20 years ago uh, and if you look at uh, if you look personality now compared to what you were 20 years ago you see that there is continuity but there's also differences uh, and that is what the dependent origination is all about in this very life there is continuity and there is a, a difference uh, and a simile that i often like to use i don't think it's found in the suttas but it's actually i think it is a fairly nice simile is the idea of a river uh, so if you stand on the bank of a river and you look at one point of that river uh, the water is passing past that point all the time so the molecules you look at from one moment to the next one is a different molecule yeah in other words there is change the molecules of water are different there is change uh, but the overall shape of the river is roughly the same yeah so if you think about your own psychology you will recognize yourself from who you were 10 years ago because there are certain habits certain ways of looking at the world certain ways that kind of make you up there's a certain background all of these things coming together makes for a certain continuity in your personality and the shape of the river depends on the large forces like the amount of precipitation that there is and all of these kind of things and only gradually does the river go up and down depending on the rainfall and snowfall or whatever it is that feeds that river from the various points in the same way, your personality changes only gradually, but if you look at the very granular, granular level, yeah, on the, uh, at the kind of uh, you know the uh, uh, molecule level or whatever, it's changing all the time. And a similar kind of thing is happening happening with you in this life. The same thing is happening also from one life to the next one, because it is the mind. Just as the mind is changing in this life, the mind then that mind is what moves on from one life to the next one. Yeah, it is changing. But there's also habits. And that's why if you were able to be, uh, recall your past lives, you would recognize it was you. That's the only way you can recognize it, because those habits carry on from one life to the next one. And there is an overall shape that is the same, that moves on from one to the next one. So there is no need for any inherent personality or any inherent kind of stability, which is always there. There's just this movement carrying on, just as in this life, from one life to the next one. You happy with that? Yeah. yeah. The, yeah. the idea of a personality is an illusion. That's what I'm saying. Illusion. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's the, the non-self uh, doctrine. Yeah, non-self teaching. But it, it is an illusion. But it's also there is some truth to it in the sense that there is continuity. Yeah, it is not a completely random process. Uh, and uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you said yeah. that the electrons and everyone are alive. How are they alive? How can we yeah. know that they are alive? Electron. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't. I didn't say that. I said this is one of the ideas of science. Yeah. I. I don't agree with that. I think it's completely wrong. Yeah. To my mind, it's, it's wrong. I'm just saying. What I'm saying is that uh, this is one of the ideas that have been put forward in philosophy in philosophy to explain why there is mind in the world. Yeah. But in my opinion, it's wrong. It's not actually true. Yeah. The only kind of reality is a personal reality. We are here. I was just saying that just to show how the world is kind of been thinking about this idea of mind, how to incorporate it into uh, into um, uh, our world. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So you're saying that the electron is not alive. Electron is just a, it's part of our perception. Yeah, we perceive electrons uh, and we infer the existence of electrons through experiments or whatever. An electron is just something that we make up. It's, a, it's something with a charge and a spin and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So if I yeah. if I think that I'm alive, yeah. and if the electron in me is not alive, because I have electrons and atoms and everything, yeah. so how can I say that I'm alive? How you can say, well, it's just a matter of definition, yeah? You are there, so, and you, are, you, you have suffering and dukkha, you call that alive, yeah? So it's a, I think it's a matter of definition. Yeah. You, feel, you feel the world, yeah? You, feel, you experience the world. That's what it means to be alive, to but experience then, the world. Yeah. Yeah. But then we yeah. say that the subconscious... Yeah. Or the conscious is not there. That's what Buddha says, that whatever is there is not there, and what is not there is there. So if the electron is not alive and I'm not alive, so yeah. how can I say that this is what I am and this is what I'm not? 
Well, I, I, if I reach to that level where yeah. I'm questioning everything, yeah, yeah. how can I say that this is what I am and this is what I am not if the electron is in me is not alive? So how can I be alive? Well, so well I think what you need to focus on is just experience. Yeah, I, th I think this is the thing: is that uh, uh, it comes down to what what is experience, and that is kind of what makes the world. There is only one thing. Ultimately, that is experience. We experience things, and part of that experience is dukkha and these kind of things. And that's what we mean by being alive, is it the fact that there is experience. As for the electron, well, you don't know whether the electron has any experience or not. It is really it's just something that is part of your personal experience. We experience electrons through experiments, through looking at the world or whatever, and we infer the existence you know, through all of these kind of things. But really, it is the uh, uh, what it means to be alive from a Buddhist point of view is just the fact that there is experience. That is that, that is what it means to be alive. Uh, so it's when it, wherever there's experience, there is also uh, beings. Uh, for you, for you, for, yeah, for, for you, yeah, for you. It is your world that matters. Other people will have other worlds. They will kind of look at the world in a different way. And they will also be... And you can infer that other people exist. Otherwise, you have a philosophical theory called the solipsism. You know solipsism? It means that only you exist and everyone else is a fantasy in your mind. But that is kind of also not really acceptable from a Buddhist point of view. Other people, of course, they also have their feelings. They also experience the world. So you just... But for you... You, the way you experience the world, uh, that is uh, kind of what it is alive for you. you know, other people have their own world. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, sorry, yeah, please. Just one more question. Um, thank you, firstly, for the talk. Very insightful. My first time here. Um, so I just wanted to understand what the Buddhist perspective is on the origins of morality. Uh, is yeah. it founded... Um, from religion? Is religion the foundation of morality or is it more innate? Okay, I, I would say that the, the Buddhist point of view is that morality is something that emerges out of the way life is, the way life is constructed. And uh, of course it comes from the idea that we feel, we feel the world uh, and everyone wants to be happy, no one wants suffering, yeah? So it actually emerges from that basic idea that we feel and we experience things and that we, everyone wants to be happy and no one wants to suffer. Everyone wants pleasure, nobody wants to suffering. It comes from that. So whenever you, uh, whenever you uh, uh, make someone else suffer, uh, yeah, by definition you're giving them something they don't want. Uh, and by giving someone uh, something you don't want, that is the definition of immor immorality. Uh. And if you give someone something they desire, you're kind to them or whatever, then that is the de definition of morality. So it comes from the basic idea that we experience the world and we feel the world. And from that, all the laws of morality are come from that. So if your intention, we say that morality in Buddhism is intention, is chaitana. Yeah? Chaitana is probably a word for intention. So if your intention is to support others, to make them feel better, to make them more happy, then that is a moral act. Uh, if your intention is to kind of to destroy other people's happiness or whatever, uh, give them suffering, then that by definition is immoral because you're giving them something they don't want uh, versus giving them something they want. Uh. So it comes from that basic idea really here. Uh. Yeah. I just want to apologize to our uh, online audience. We've yeah. been having some broad... Issues with our broadband connection this morning, so okay. Uh, thanks for sticking with us. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Yeah. Dukkha. Yeah. We. <laughs> Life is uncertain. You never know. Okay. Very good. So uh, that's it, I suppose. Yeah. So now, we, what do we do now? We just do the Arahang Sammasambuddha. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. We do the Arahang Sammasambuddha together, and then uh, uh, that's it. So good.